Chapter Five of the History of Genghis Khan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Bosk. The History of Genghis Khan by Jacob Abbott. Chapter Five, Vang Khan. Eleven seventy-five. The country over which Vang Khan ruled was called Kurakate. It bordered upon the country of Katay, which has already been mentioned as forming the northern part of what is now China. Indeed, as its name imports, it was considered in some sense as a portion of the same general district of country. It was that part of Katay which was inhabited by Tartars. Vang Khan was descended from a powerful line of Khans who had reigned over Karakate for many generations. These Khans were a wild and lawless race of men, continually fighting with each other, both for mastery and also for the plunder of each other's flocks and herds. In this way, most furious and cruel wars were often fought between near relatives. Vang Khan's grandfather, whose name was Murgus, was taken prisoner in one of these quarrels by another Khan, who, though he was a relative, was so much exasperated by something that Murgus had done, that he sent him away to a great distance to the king of a certain country, which is called Kurga, to be disposed of there. The king of Kurga put him into a sack, sewed up the mouth of it, and then laid him across the wooden image of an ass, and left him there to die of hunger and suffocation. The wife of Murgus was greatly enraged when she heard of the cruel fate of her husband. She determined to be revenged. It seems that the relative of her husband, who had taken him prisoner, and had sent him to the king of Kurga, had been her lover in former times before her marriage. So she sent him a message, in which she dissembled her grief for the loss of her husband, and only blamed the king of Kurga for his cruel death, and then said that she had long felt an affection for him, and that, if he continued of the same mind as when he had formerly addressed her, she was now willing to become his wife, and offered, if he would come to a certain place, which she specified, to meet her, she would join him there. Nar, for that was the chieftain's name, fell at once into the snare which the beautiful widow thus laid for him. He immediately accepted her proposals, and proceeded to the place of rendezvous. He went, of course, attended by a suitable guard, though his guard was small, and consisted chiefly of friends and personal attendants. The princess was attended also by a guard, not large enough, however, to excite any suspicion. She also took with her in her train a large number of carts, which were to be drawn by bullocks, and which were laden with stores of provisions, clothing, and other such valuables, intended as a present for her new husband. Among these, however, there were a large number of great barrels, or rounded receptacles of some sort, in which she had concealed a considerable force of armed men. These receptacles were so arranged that the men concealed in them could open them from within in an instant, at a given signal, and issue forth suddenly all armed and ready for action. Among the other stores which the princess had provided, there was a large supply of a certain intoxicating drink which the Mongols and Tartars were accustomed to make in those days. As soon as the two parties met at the place of rendezvous, the princess gave Nar a very cordial greeting, and invited him and all his party to a feast, 
to be partaken on the spot. The invitation was accepted, the stores of provisions were opened, and many of the presents were unpacked and displayed. At the feast, Nar and his party were all supplied abundantly with the intoxicating liquor, which, as is usual in such cases, they were easily led to drink to excess. While on the other hand, the princess's party, who knew what was coming, took good care to keep themselves sober. At length, when the proper moment arrived, the princess made the signal. In an instant, the men who had been placed in ambuscade in the barrels burst forth from their concealment and rushed upon the guests at the feast. The princess herself, who was all ready for action, drew a dagger from her girdle and stabbed Nar to the heart. Her guards, assisted by the reinforcement which had so suddenly appeared, slew or secured all his attendants, who were so totally incapacitated, partly by the drink which they had taken, and partly by their astonishment at the sudden appearance of so overwhelming a force, that they were incapable of making any resistance. The princess, having thus accomplished her revenge, marshaled her men, packed up her pretended presents, and returned in triumph home. Such stories as these, related by the Asiatic writers, though they were probably often much embellished in the narration, had doubtless all some foundation in fact, and they give us some faint idea of the modes of life and action which prevailed among these half-savage chieftains in those times. Vang Khan himself was the grandson of Murgus, who was sewed up in a sack. His father was the oldest son of the princess who contrived the above-narrated stratagem to revenge her husband's death. It is said that he used to accompany his father to the wars when he was only ten years old. The way in which he formed his friendship for Yezankai, and the alliance with him which led him to call Temujin his son, and to refuse to take his wife away from him, as already related, was this. When his father died, he succeeded to the command, being the oldest son, but the others were jealous of him, and after many and long quarrels with them, and with other relatives, especially with his uncle, who seemed to take the lead against him, he was at last overpowered or outmaneuvered, and was obliged to fly. He took refuge, in his distress, in the country of Yezenkai. Yezenkai received him in a very friendly manner, and gave him effectual protection. After a time he furnished him with troops, and helped him to recover his kingdom, and to drive his uncle away into banishment in his turn. It was while he was thus in Yezenkai's dominions that he became acquainted with Temujin, who was then very small, and it was there that he learned to call him his son. Of course, now that Temujin was obliged to fly himself from his native country, and abandon his hereditary dominions, as he had done before, he was glad of the opportunity of requiting to the son the favor which he had received, in precisely similar circumstances, from the father, and so he gave Temujin a very kind reception. There is another circumstance which is somewhat curious in respect to Vang Khan, and that is, that he is generally supposed to be the prince whose fame was about this period spread all over Europe, under the name of Prester John, by the Christian missionaries in Asia. These missionaries sent to the Pope, and to various Christian kings in Europe, very exaggerated accounts of the success of their missions among the Persians, Turks, and Tartars. And at last they wrote word that the great Khan of the Tartars had become a convert, and had even become a preacher of the gospel, and had taken the name of Prester John. 
the word prester was understood to be a corruption of presbyter a great deal was accordingly written and said all through christendom about the great tartar convert prester john there were several letters forwarded by the missionaries professedly from him and addressed to the pope and to the different kings of europe some of these letters it is said are still in existence one of them was to the king of france in this letter the writer tells the king of france of his great wealth and of the vastness of his dominions he says he has seventy kings to serve and wait upon him he invites the king of france to come and see him promising to bestow a great kingdom upon him if he will and also to make him his heir and leave all his dominions to him when he dies with a great deal more of the same general character the other letters were much the same and the interest which they naturally excited was increased by the accounts which the missionaries gave of the greatness and renown of this more than royal convert and of the progress which christianity had made and was still making in his dominions through their instrumentality it is supposed in modern times that these stories were pretty much all inventions on the part of the missionaries or at least that the accounts which they sent were greatly exaggerated and embellished and there is but little doubt that they had much more to do with the authorship of the letters than any con still however it is supposed that there was a great prince who at least encouraged the missionaries in their work and allowed them to preach christianity in his dominions and if so there is little doubt that van Khan was the man at all events he was a very great and powerful prince and he reigned over a wide extent of country the name of his capital was karakorum the distance which temujin had to travel to reach this city was about ten days journey he was received by van Khan with great marks of kindness and consideration van Khan promised to protect him and in due time to assist him in recovering his kingdom in the meanwhile temujin promised to enter at once into van Khan's service and to devote himself faithfully to promoting the interests of his kind protector by every means in his power End of chapter 5